Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. What if I called myself Pablo? And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with Robin D'Angelo. Are we? And all I got to say is buckle your seatbelts. Oh, yes. Robin has a PhD in multicultural, or sorry, multicultural education from the University of Washington. And also, she's been a consultant and trainer for over 20 years in issues of racial and social justice. And um, this year, she came out with a book called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. This was a powerful conversation. This is a powerful book. Um. Yeah, this was this was good stuff. Really enjoyed talking with her. And this this is gonna be this is gonna be hard. Uh, this might be hard for you to hear. Um, but this is this is such an important conversation, even though it's uh, uncomfortable. And you know, it, it's conversations like these um, is really one of the reasons why we started the podcast. And it's important for us to learn from things that make us uncomfortable and ask ourselves why does this make us. Um, so uncomfortable cool however before we get into that conversation uh oh it's time it is time for the for learner's corner approved resource of the week but up 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 ba felt like just carrying that out for a minute and uh to continue with our theme of talk- I love how you're so composed. <laughs> Somebody's got to be continuing with our theme of uh, talking about um, the talking about race today. Um, I want I want to recommend a movie that I saw. It is called Black Klansman. Oh, I knew you were gonna do this, and um, it is just go watch it. It's it's a it's a great movie, and. Um, it it will, again. This is don't watch it with kids around. This this is another one of those things, and I think it, this is just true whenever it comes comes to race and in general. Um, That's powerful. It it's race has kind of become polar, a little bit of a polarizing uh, topic, but it's still important for us. It's important for us to talk about it. It's important for us to learn about it, and uh, this this movie will definitely continue um, to inform. Um, your your perspective, no matter what, um, no matter what your background is. And so we highly recommend this resource. It is our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Now, as we mentioned, we have a great conversation with Robin, and so here is our conversation. Well, Robin, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. You know, you recently released uh, a book called White Fragility, and, you know, it really talks about why it's so difficult for white people to have conversations about race. And just as we're getting started, I was just curious, was there a particular moment or event that made you think, man, I feel like I need to write this book? I think it's more the culmination of years of day in and day out having a rather rare job for a white person, which is pushing uh, other white people to have conversations about race. 
And after several decades of that, uh, just getting more clarity on the dynamics of those conversations and how they actually function, because our outcomes are not getting better, right? Racial disparity is measurable across every institution and every measure of well-being in our society. And in some of those measures, it's actually getting worse, not better. And yet individually, most white people see themselves as completely outside of any, you know, any system that would lead to that. And tend to be rather defensive about any suggestion that they may actually be part of a a system or society uh, that leads to that. And really wanting to change that, right? Make life less painful for so many people of color. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that whenever it comes to this topic, white people, and um, I can even be guilty of this myself, of being just defensive, Whenever it comes to this, even if it doesn't come out, what I've what what I know I've wrestled with, and, and him and I have talked about this, is like the first initial reaction is this: oh, well, let's try to figure out how that's not true. Even if we don't say it out loud, it, it's kind of the first thing that pops in our mind, and then we start trying to reason with it, just to kind of give an extra piece to that. Well, I think there are multiple threads that lead us to be so often so difficult on this topic, right? It's not one single thread, but we can start with what we think a racist is. And um, post-civil rights, a racist became, you know, the image of of somebody in a robe with a hood uh, that would or that would beat up somebody at a, at a lunch counter. Right. During the civil rights movement. Today, a racist would march down the streets of Charlottesville, you know, shouting blood and soil. And if that's your criteria for a racist, um, then it, any suggest it pretty much exempts virtually all white people um, from looking at the inevitable ways that we actually get socialized into a racist worldview. It's a system. It's the bedrock of our society. Uh, none of us could be exempt from its forces and none of us were. So, so that definition of the individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race and intentionally wants to be mean to them, I think is the root of most of the defensiveness, right? You're, you're trying to basically question my very moral character. You know, I also think there's something profoundly anti-black in our culture. I think white people, the white collective, have a pretty deep resentment towards black people. And we are relentlessly fed images that are profoundly problematic. Most of us live segregated lives. We don't have relationships across race and with with African-Americans in particular. So you have some of that superiority in there. And yet we can never admit to that because that would connect us over to that (laughs) bad racist. Um, You have an expectation that we should be comfortable. You know, I think I move through a world in which I'm racially comfortable virtually 24 seven. And so I come to feel entitled to be comfortable and talking about racism is not comfortable. And so I, I experience that as some kind of social breach that's just happened. Right. So you said something interesting in that statement that I just wanted to, I wanted to, to kind of ask you about, you talked about how um, white people have this anger or resentment. Um, where does that come from? I actually wrote an entire chapter um, on essentially that question, right? Anti-blackness. Again, very complex. 
there's there's so much roiling just below the surface, I think, for, for white people. Um, I think there's almost a, a moral trauma. I'm going to use the word trauma that we have never faced or come to terms with in, uh, in our history. Right. And, and I think there is that there is that collective kind of guilt um, that's unbearable for us. And we project I think we handle it by projecting our sins onto black bodies basically if you think about everything we we say about black people right uh lazy uh shiftless criminal uh i mean i, I think that perverts the actual uh direction um uh, of those of of harm across uh the centuries and i also want to be really clear that when i say moral trauma based on do you hear that airplane? I'm gonna pause. Mm-mm. No, oh, I didn't hear it. I believe that black people are the ultimate racial other in the white mind, right? And that on some level, white people need black people in order to be superior, right? White has no meaning without blackness, and that creates a backdrop against which I may rise and I may achieve. And so I think there's also like a kind of an identity investment um, in this construct, right? So there, there are a lot of pieces that cause us to be fairly irrational. But I, I am consistently taken aback at the resentment so many white people seem to feel towards black people. Um, and the mean-spiritedness right? I'm actually consistently stunned that I'm just going to, can I be blunt? Mm -hmm. How pissy and mean white people get Mm -hmm. when you suggest that black people have less and how quickly they pervert the reality and say, no, they have more than we have now. And, you know, and that's unfair. You know, it's, it's almost as if any any uppityness, right? Any looking me in the eye as an equal will not be tolerated, right? I mean, you will step off the curve when I walk down the sidewalk. And I think the less black people do that, the more outrage we seem to get. I, I think the current political climate is a great example of, you know, the backlash of umbrage at eight years of being under the leadership of, of a black man, quite quite frankly. And that none of this has to be conscious. If listeners are sitting there thinking, well, I don't feel that. I, I actually don't feel those things at a conscious level either, but I know they're in there. Mm-hmm. And they do surface at different times in different contexts. Yeah, that was, I think that was for me, one of the biggest eye-opening things um, of just just the first time that I experienced this of just realizing that it doesn't have to be conscious for it to be, um, for it to be an act of racism or even to be racist. And then you throw in the whole, um, the, the systemic roots of it as well. And really, um, how some of our systems in themselves are racist and that's some, that in itself is an act, um, as well. And so, you can. Do you have any other thoughts on well, that? Well, most bias is not conscious, and, and I mean, this is the wonderful thing or the exciting thing about the research and implicit bias is we now understand that the great majority of it is not conscious at all. It, we can and we do hold diametrically opposing beliefs. So, at the conscious level, 
I absolutely believe everybody's equal. I've committed my life work to that belief. But unconsciously, no way I could possibly believe that because mm-hmm. I've relentlessly across my life been given messages that say, no, everybody's not equal. Yeah. This kind of per- person is superior to this kind of person. But because those buried beliefs, if you will, I had to bury those beliefs because they conflict with my identity as a good moral person. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually more likely to be defensive and in denial. Uh, and that's kind of the great rub about implicit bias. Uh, Sociologists call that aversive racism. Mm. Uh, Aversive races have deep, you know, deep racial disdain, and it surfaces in all kinds of ways in daily discourse, but can never be admitted to. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the other challenges that when it comes to having conversations about race? I've never met a white person who didn't have an opinion on racism, have you? (laughs) Um, And we live in a society that says all opinions are equal um, and everyone's opinion should be heard and affirmed. And and I would say, no, uh, all opinions are not equal. Some are informed and some are not. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, without a lot of ongoing uh, study, struggle, focus, you know, a really intensive effort. In this country, if you are white, you can't have an informed opinion on racism. You can have an opinion. You will have an opinion. I mean, you can't grow up in this society and not develop one, but it will be uninformed because nothing gives you the information you need to have more than that. You you can get through graduate school in this country. Not only you can get through graduate school never in your life having a, a teacher or professor who wasn't white. Um, but you can get through graduate school without ever discussing racism. We all know that. You can get through law school, medical school, teacher education without ever discussing racism. And you can be seen as qualified to lead a major or minor institution. You can be seen as qualified to manage people with no ability whatsoever to engage with any depth on the topic of racism, with no ability to answer the question, what does it mean to be white? How has your race shaped your life? We never ask that as a as a qualification. And so and, and so we have these incredibly superficial opinions that are very charged, and it leads us just to give ridiculous evidence for why we're not racist, right? Well, I've been to Costa Rica. <laughs> I, I, I was in Teach for America. You know, I have multiracial nieces and nephews. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps. I was a minority in Japan. I grew up poor. You know, just ridiculous evidence for our lack of racism uh, based on, right, uh, this culture of valuing opinion over informed knowledge. Okay, and it, um, I also, there's another one which is individualism. So I'll, let me pause and see if you had anything else to say about the opinion piece. Uh. Can you just talk about the, the importance of listening? Because that's a big that's a that seems to just be a big a big theme that I just hear you talking about is you know hey we don't have an informed opinion and the way that I would say even if we don't have an informed opinion the way to um, I guess strengthen or become more informed to an extent is to listen to people who have gone through that experience. I think. Overall, most white people are apathetic about racial injustice. 
I, I don't think most people care. We care on an incredibly superficial level, right? Show me a picture of Rodney King being beaten and I'll feel upset about it. But I'm not going to really do absolutely anything different in my daily life, much less take the initiative to inform myself, much less just listen. <laughs> you know, it, it becomes revolutionary for white people to just listen with humility. But again, we're talking about some of the challenges to that. If I can't tell you what it means to be white, I'm not going to be able to hold your experience of what it means not to be white. I'm most likely going to dismiss and invalidate that uh, because I can't even think critically about how my own race shapes my life. So all of these things get in the way of us being able to do such simple things like listen. What can we do to develop that mentality of humility and empathy? You have to change the fundamental paradigm. Uh, we, we simply can't get there from the current paradigm. And the current paradigm says basically only individual mean people uh, who are aware of racial disdain could ever have it. Um, we're just, we have to upend that and change the question. Uh, right now, that definition sets us up to ask if he's racist, right? If that was or wasn't racism. And we need to change the question to how was that racism, right? How was racism at play in that exchange? Um, uh, how does my conditioning come out in my daily life and my relationships? You start from the premise that, of course, you've been conditioned into this system, and then it changes everything, mm -hmm. right? So, so let me put it really directly. As a result of being raised as a white person in this society, I have a racist worldview. There's no way I could avoid internalizing a racist worldview. It's embedded in the language, in the traditions, in the, you know, everything. I also have racist biases because I've absorbed countless representations that are profoundly narrow and problematic. Uh, I have patterns that have developed that are racist. Um, and I have investments in the system of racism, which is so, it's so comfortable. And it, it has served me so well to overcome some of the barriers that I have faced. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also have an investment in not seeing any of that because of what it suggests to me in my mind of, you know, of whether I'm a good person or not. I didn't choose that, I, you know, I, I, but I have it. And it's, it's not a matter of guilt for me. It's a matter of responsibility. So once you accept that, it's incredibly liberating. Because now I can stop defending, denying, deflecting, and just get to work trying to figure out, all right, and how is all of that coming out in your daily life and in your relationships? And I wish white people understood that silence on race, not seeing white space as racialized, not seeing an all-white executive team as racialized, uh, I wish we understood that that is one of the ways it's coming out in our daily lives. We're always looking for the explicit, did you say the N-word? You know, okay, no, nothing, you know, let's move on. We, we have to change our understanding of what racism is. What's the hardest part of racism that, that you have to wrestle with on a personal level? Uh, of my own or trying to educate other white people? Both. Well, we'll start with trying to educate other white people. I think I've mapped out um, 
the incredible, I think the incredible resistance, even, even white people who are open, um, what I call say white progressives who see themselves as open are fine. As long as you're talking about it in the abstract, right? So maybe someone's listening right now, they're white, they're uh huh. Okay. They're tracking, they're open, they're considering, but then I actually point out a manifestation of their racism happening right now in the room. Right. Let's say we're I'm in a training and somebody asks a question and I say, oh, let me you know, teachable moment here. Let me help you see how that very question was problematic. Right. How that very question came from a racist frame that you're not aware of. And then the room explodes with how dare you and divides it in half of, you know, who thought I just mistreated the person and who doesn't. And. So it's that it's that ability to think about it in the abstract, but not to connect uh, anybody actually to it. And that's because the paradigm hadn't changed. Sure. You know, you, you, you connect me to it now and I will be grateful. I mean, I don't want to be doing that. And I didn't know I was doing that. So thank you. Right. The nature of an assumption is you don't know you're making it. So I'm probably not going to be the best person to check my assumptions. And so um, thank you for breaking with white solidarity and helping me see. Right. Um, I put it like this. I think the worst fear of a white progressive is we would accidentally say something racist. Right. Would you guys? Yeah. That's a huge fear of white progressives. But don't you dare tell me I just said something racist. You know, that, that's a pretty tight little, you know, corner there. That's uh, interesting. We're in, right? Yeah. So I think with my own, it's just the power of the patterns. And probably the one I'm the most struggling with right now as an extrovert is talking over and interrupting the people of color in my life. Mm-hmm. So, the, so, so the listening, the holding, um, know what I have to say is not the most brilliant thing that just must be said or, or this conversation, you know, won't have the depth it needs, right? Um, waiting, holding. And I used to not understand um, that while that pattern, like as an extrovert, I mean, I have to watch my um, pull to cut off lots of people. Same. <laughs> and I used to think about it as, well, but I do that to everybody, so therefore it can't be racism, right? This is a, a, a common misunderstanding of a lot of white people. If if we do this thing to everyone, then it has nothing to do with race. And I had to come to understand, no, when you do it to this person, the impact is very different because we bring a history with us. And while I might see myself as just Robin, you know, Deborah's friend, Deborah sees me as Robin, my white friend. And part of being white is not having to see ourselves in racial terms. Um, and so, you know, for Deborah, it's like yet again, a white person is talking over me, silencing me, not paying attention to the positions we're in in society and basically saying, well, that's my preferred mode of engagement. So if you have a problem with it, you'll have to figure it out because I'm not going to do anything different. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have had to really change the way I understand what it means when you do the same thing across race. And I often use the anal- analogy. Of for men, right? Maybe when you guys, I don't know, you guys, you guys seem pretty sweet, but maybe when you fight, you yell at each other. <laughs> you look like, you look both cisgender men, 
right? Identifies men. Um, And maybe you raise your voice with each other and and it's nothing. But when you raise your voice to me as a woman, there's a really different impact. Mm -hmm. And, And I'd like to think you know that, you understand that. And you're thoughtful about it, right? Um, and so, therefore, you moderate how you interact across these power positions. And it's the same thing, but white people are not used to having to think in those ways. So, anyway, that's my most current struggle, I think. And I'm sure there's lots of subtle things that I do with the people of color in my life, but what they don't expect perfection. They don't expect me to be free of my racist conditioning, um, but they're what they're looking for is repair. How do I respond when it gets pointed out? Um, and what I could tell you after several decades of doing this work is I do run these patterns much less often. I'm not defensive at all when I realize I'm doing it. And have really good repair skills. <laughs> uh, and the people of color in my life appreciate those things and hang in there with me. Can you talk about uh, those repair skills a little bit? And like, what would be an example or two of those? Yeah, and I do map out a whole um, example in the last chapter of my book where I have made a really inappropriate joke uh, about a black woman's hair and um, how I went about repairing that. But a couple of steps is um, kind of vent and clean up your own feelings about it. I mean, it's embarrassing when we realize we've done it and we feel guilty and all of that, but we don't want to bring that to the person and put them, you know, in the position of absolving us of our guilt. So try to try to move past or through your feelings before you <laughs> attempt to repair it. Um, I, at this point, rarely ever even mention what my intentions were. Um, so, but very, very little focus on intention and just own the impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ask, you know, uh, share what you understand happened. That's really affirming. I mean, I could just say I'm sorry, and that's better than not saying I'm sorry, but sometimes that's just like, okay, you're sorry, but do you understand what happened? And that's really helpful for the person who you just stepped on. I think that part about intent, and it really, we've, t- we've talked about it a lot throughout this whole thing, is because I think people, specifically white people, and even myself, can sometimes go, but I didn't intend for that to happen. But you, as you were saying, but it still had the impact, regardless of what your intentions were. It still had this impact on me that negatively affected me. Yeah, actually, we could add that to our list of what is so hard about talking about racism with white people is we really seem to think that if our intentions are good, then that the impact of our actions should not matter. I mean, it's certainly the way we come at it, right? Well, I told you I didn't mean to, you know, so indirectly we're saying, so get over it because I didn't mean to Mm -hmm. rather than, well, I didn't mean to, but I see that I did. And that's what I care about. That's what I want to intend to attend to. Yeah. So I think we've all, probably been in a situation to where, you know, maybe a coworker or a friend, you know, 
they've they've said something that's racist, whether it be a comment or a joke or intentionally, unintentionally, as we talked about, it really doesn't matter if it was intent. Well, it does matter if it was intentional or unintentional, but it still has that impact on people. And, um, you know, we've we've remained silent either because we're afraid of what other people might say around us, other white people or judgment. Um, how do we go about fighting through this fear? So, so you're talking about a white solidarity. Um, and I define that as the unspoken agreement between white people that will keep each other comfortable around our racism. You know, I don't want you to feel bad or feel embarrassed, so I won't say anything. Um, also, I don't want the conflict that's likely to happen. Um, you know, likely you're going to dismiss me as being oversensitive and tell me to lighten up. Um, and so all of those things kind of keep us from speaking up. But if I think about it in those ways, it's white solidarity. I am choosing in this moment to protect your racism, um, to privilege, you know, that little moment of discomfort for you over, you know, uh, allowing your racist comments to circulate in, in the culture and to have you be unaccountable for it. When I think about it like that, it's a little harder to <laughs> remain silent. And and I think we need to ask ourselves, why would calling in this racist comment ruin this dinner right now, but not saying anything about this racist comment won't ruin the dinner, right? You know, you running your racism at this party um, won't ruin the party, but saying um, I, that's not acceptable to me will. I mean, right, that's a, that's a question more worth asking. Um, and I think about it as I do want to shift you, um, and I hope that in my speaking up, no matter how scared I am, no matter how inelegant it is, in just that moment, you did have to be a little bit accountable for what you said, and you did have to hear a counter-narrative. But ultimately, I, I have to let go of how you respond and do it for my own health, if you will. It's not healthy for me to collude with white supremacy. I, I don't want to reinforce that socialization. I want to break with it. And so I have to speak up. If I don't, I have to own that I colluded with your racism, that you could not run that without my com uh, uh, complicity. Right. And so we also tend to think about it as, oh, my God, well, thank God you said it, not me. Right. So you're the racist. I'm not. And we have to understand that. No, you you actually contributed to the ability for him to have that racism. And I, that's not bearable for me. Right. Um, my what I profess to value in my actual behavior is out of alignment if I do that. Right. If I maintain white solidarity. And that's not something I can live with. I, I think white people, we need to be able to live with less. <laughs> Uh, racism, quite frankly. I mean, our threshold's pretty high. Yeah. So, what do you have any advice? Let's say that some, let's say that you do confront someone on their racist behavior and they're, they're just all of a sudden, they're up, they start getting upset and they're like, no, 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 no. I didn't, going back to our word, I didn't intend for it to happen that way. What advice would you give to someone in um, in handling someone who is not receptive to um, to the correction? 
Yeah. Well, see, the first thing I want to do is I because um, there's there's two top questions I get when I do a like a, a presentation, and one is what do I do, and the other one is how do I tell so and so about their racism, and so I, I just want to offer a challenge back, which is, and how would I tell you about your racism without triggering your white fragility, right? And the reason that I like to offer that back is that. The question presumes it's not going to be me, right? I'm good to go. And how do I go forth and, and wake up those other white people? So just, just a little nudge back towards humility. And I'll answer the question. Um, there's different strategies. A couple that I use are I try to point the finger inward, not outward, right? So I'm not going to say you are a racist. That was racist. Now, if it's really egregious, you know, there's a line that sometimes you just have to draw and say that is absolutely unacceptable. That would probably take the N-word for me. But if it's something maybe, quote-unquote, more subtle, yeah. you know, I, I, I might say something like this. Um, I can totally relate to that feeling. I, I've had that feeling myself. Um, but in my work, I've had the, a really rare opportunity to talk to people who are kind of on the receiving end of those feelings. And I've seen the impact. And when I hear that, I see the face of my friend Deborah, um, and I see the the pain of of that kind of thinking and the consequences. And I just can't I can't go there anymore, right? Or um, now you might still get defensive, but um, it's it's a little bit hard to argue with. Right. I mean, I just said I, I, I started out by saying I relate to what you're saying. Right. So maybe we'll bring the defensiveness down a little bit. But then I've kind of brought the human face into that room. Um, and if it was me, I would be like, I might get defensive, but I'd probably never say it again. Right. Like that, that would that would impact me. Right. Um and maybe just bearing, I mean, just building our capacity to bear that, yeah, white people don't like it when we call in each other's racism. So is that going to be the reason we don't do it? Um, look yourself in the mirror then uh, and just say, well, I, I'd rather collude with white supremacy. And I can't do that. I can't look in the mirror and say that. But, you know, I mean, it's not benign. Um, and, and I think it's really like that's the level that we have to think about it as. So I think a, a follow-up that I wanted to ask to that is <clears throat> I think that people would hear what you're saying and they would say, okay, um, cool. But <laughs> if all of us were in the room and we're all white people and there is uh, a nod or a slight that's given, why is it so important? To call it out, nobody was in the room that heard it that would be impacted by it, or nobody that didn't hurt anybody by me saying that just now. Why is it so important then to actively be trying to call this out? Even and, and it could be even with other people in the room. Like, well, it wasn't even that big of a deal. I made I said that that it's not that big of a deal. Why why is this so important? Because I think that the the word is that you used earlier was apathetic. Um, because yeah. it's not that big of a deal to me. Yeah, and first I want to say something about the not all the listeners will agree. And there isn't any way we're going to be talking about racism and white people without it being provocative, right? 
Um, and I always think if it wasn't provocative for your listeners that I didn't do a good job because I don't <laughs> want to reinforce the same old, same old. So let me just offer a question to listeners who may not be agreeing right now. What qualifies you to disagree with me? I'm serious, right? Like you're not informed hmm. enough to agree or disagree. I was not informed enough to be in a position to agree or disagree with the people of color in my life or white people who had devoted, you know, decades of work in this area. Um, and I don't mean just academic work. I mean, you know, deep relationship work. I mean, it's just worth, you know, it's worth grappling with the kind of arrogance and certitude so many white people have um, that they're as informed as they need to be on this topic. Mm-hmm. And so they just rehearse the same worldview that they already hold right now. And we're back to the not listening. So having said that, um, your question is a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. So, but, but people were hurt by that comment, if you will. And it's the white people in that room, because for everybody in that room, white supremacy was reinforced, right? Racism was reinforced. Uh, us, them was reinforced. Um, and that impacts how we are out in the world, right? So none of that was interrupted. And I I think about it as if there's a room full of men and you're in that room, I'm not in that room, and they're, you know, locker room talk, uh, saying really misogynistic things. And, you know, there's no women in the room, so why should that be interrupted? I don't know. It just seems so obvious to me that that needs to be interrupted almost all the more because there aren't women in the room, because all the men in the room just had all of that sexism reinforced. And they're going to go out and interact with women and probably unconsciously be acting out all those narratives that have been reinforced. Right. And it's the same for white people. It's such a limited worldview. Um, And you don't have to, you know, if it's more, quote unquote, subtle, you don't have to call it racism, which, you know, makes everybody lose their mind. That's a that's a yeah, that's a that's definitely a a match that gets thrown on things is when when that word comes. I mean, it's too bad that it's a match. I mean, I think white people, again, everything we do has to be bending over in knots to avoid white people getting ruffled. And they don't like that word. And I'm, I'm a little impatient with that. But all right, mm-hmm. strategically saying racist is probably not going to work, right? Because it's so loaded and charged. And if they don't have that paradigm, right? you, you call me racist, and I'm going to be very comfortable with that because I have a different understanding of what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. But so don't don't say that word, right? Not a good idea you know, get to it in a different way, right? Kind of like, well, yeah, but what about this? Or, you know, like you might do with anything else. Yeah, but I've heard this, or I've been thinking about that lately. And just offer something else in that room. Mm -hmm. There's actually research that um, people overhearing a conversation, like they put kind of researchers into a situation and they would talk on a park bench about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people that overheard them, if you interviewed them later, they would have a positive idea about that thing if they had overheard that, right? You know, my point is that we are influenced by all of these narratives. So to not offer a counter narrative is to reinforce racist conditioning and i hope we can agree that racist conditioning is not something we want to uphold Mm -hmm. 
you know, really a lot of what we've talked about um, today is kind of examples of what your what your book is called, White Fragility. And we've kind of hinted at it a lot. Can Would you just give us kind of your definition of what, what it is? Yeah. All of this leads to uh, us not being very... Um, not responding very constructively when any of it's called out, right? So for a lot of white people, just suggesting that being white has meaning will upset us. Uh, uh, For a lot of white people, just me talking about white people right now um, will upset us. Uh, To proceed as if I could know something about you just because you're white. We don't like that, right? and as a sociologist, I'm very comfortable proceeding as if I could know something about you just because you're white. I mean, social life is patterned in predictable and observable ways. And I, I, I really haven't met anybody who doesn't recognize the defensive responses. How we would analyze them maybe is different, but I'm simply describing a very common social phenomena and then offering what I how I think it functions, right? So All of this, because I am so rarely ever outside of my racial comfort zone, um, and I've never had to build my capacity to bear the discomfort in this society of grappling with racism, plus, you know, seeing myself as an individual, feeling entitled, you know, all of this, we tend to lash out when anybody questions uh, our positions, our, our advantages. And I think about it as we get thrown off our racial equilibrium, right? I, I move through a world uh, day in, day out where I'm pretty darn comfortable. So I think about that as I'm in my racial equilibrium. And we need, we find it unbearable and we need it to stop. So we react in ways that will repel that challenge, right? Uh, and those those range from crying to anger to invalidation, defensiveness, playing the devil's advocate, arguing, uh, withdrawing, uh, whatever it takes to get you to back off and to reinstate my worldview and my sense of myself in the world, right? And the the term the fragile piece is to capture how little it takes <laughs> for us to react. Mm-hmm. But it is not fragile at all in its impact. It's incredibly powerful and effective and in getting the challenge to end and to regain our positions uh, in a racially in- inequitable society. So I I think white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying. I think white people tend to be bullies (laughs) uh, on this topic, particularly towards people of color. And we make it so miserable for them to try to talk to us about their experiences or to try to talk to us about our inevitable but often unaware racist patterns that most of the time they don't trust me. Most of the time, people of color don't bother because they risk more punishment, right? They risk losing the relationship. They risk having to um, defend their experience, right? They risk being seen as a problem, being dismissed. And so they just suck it up and take it home. Uh, And 
I want us to knock it off so they don't have to suck it up and take it home and die at higher rates from stress-related illnesses, right? And so I also see it as a form of everyday white racial control. Um, it's how I get to have people of color in my life to the degree that I can use them as my credentialing, right? My diversity cover. I can say, oh, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Um, as long as that black friend doesn't fundamentally challenge me. Um, if they do that, they might get away with it once, but a couple times, and they're probably going to be just seen as a personal problem. We see this in the workplace all the time. Mm-hmm. So white fragility, powerful tool of everyday white racial control. <laughs> I'm curious as to how we got here. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of just studying of what, of the United States and kind of the progression of, of, of slaves coming to the U S and, and what that all looked like. And, and just over the last year, just been really looking into a lot of those things and how we've gotten here from the civil war to through all through Jim Crow and all through the things that have, that just how things have happened. I'm curious though, how this white fragility has been, has formed. Um, you, you've talked about what it is, but, but I'm, I'm curious about how it got here. And, and kind of how it formed. Well, without the history lesson, let me just say that um, race is a relatively new idea. Um, Ibram Kende, who is a National Book Award winning author of Stamp from the Beginning, Definitive History of Race, Racist Ideas in America, talks about um, you start with the exploitation of a group's resources that you have the means to exploit and that you want. And then you make up a story to rationalize your exploitation. A lot of white people believe that race has racism has always been there because we fear difference. And, you know, and no, it's a relatively new idea. And it was created to justify enslavement and genocide. Um, and he also talks about there's the producers of racist ideas and then there's the consumers. Um, and we are the consumers of those racist ideas. I might not produce them, but I certainly have uh, could not avoid consuming them. And they haven't let up. I mean, it's a highly adaptive system and it does adapt to challenges over time and keeps on keeping on. So uh, I think the most brilliant adaptation post-civil rights was the reduction of a racist to an individual mean person. And, and basically nice people can't be racist. Apparently most white people believe, because that's the evidence they almost always give if somebody is accused of racism is no, 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 he's not racist. He's a really nice guy. Um, so all of the all of these dynamics, you know, um, we can trace them across history. But you mentioned that a lot of your listeners are millennials, um, are are what I would think of as younger people, right? And I'm I'm middle aged, and I've done a lot of work lately with large tech companies, and most of the employees appear to be under thirty, right? And this is the generation raised, you know colorblind, supposedly. This is the generation that might profess progressive values, right? Um, And yet they are completely ill-equipped to engage with any nuance in the question of what it means to be white, uh, how whiteness shapes their lives, and they are dumbfounded when the people of color in their workplaces 
and the black people in particular, because black people are the least represented in their workplaces, when they share the agony that they are in, in the overwhelming whiteness of those workplaces, those young white tech workers are just dumbfounded. They have no idea um, that they are contributing to a climate that is so painful for their coworkers of color. Um, so it, these are the ways it's adapted over time, but it still produces the same outcome. An overwhelmingly, you know, white controlled institutions um, allowing a few folks in, but not too many, right? I mean, they don't tend to stay um, in those environments. I, I think one of the most hostile, toxic play, uh, environments for people of color day in and day out is unexamined whiteness. The whiteness of those companies is acute, but completely unexamined. And these people of color have to function in it, right? We're back to, I bring to the table with me the inability to think critically about how my own race shapes my life, right? And if I, I bring that to that table and people of color interacting with me know that I can't answer that question. And so they can't talk to me about what's happening for them. Because either I'm just not even going to be able to comprehend it or I'm going to completely deny it because it isn't happening to me. Interesting. Does that does that help at all? Answer that question. I don't know. All right. Yep. Most definitely. Robin, good deep questions you're asking. (laughs) As we're wrapping up, um, what would you say are one or two uh, steps that people can take to become less fragile? Take out a piece of paper and and write down your answer to this question. What about your life has allowed you to be a full functioning, educated adult and not know what to do about racism? Why in 2018 is that your question? How do I become less fragile? I mean, that's a sincere take out a piece of paper and start to write it down. And the first thing on your list is probably going to be I wasn't educated about any of this. I didn't know this. Second thing might be, I don't have a lot of cross-racial relationships, if any. Uh, Next thing may be, or I don't talk about race with the people in my life. Uh, Four, uh, I rarely talk about race even with white people uh, or speak up about it. Five, I haven't cared enough to take the initiative to find out, right? I mean, every one of those things is your map for, for what to do. And none of them are easy. All of them are ongoing and lifelong. So maybe in a nutshell, take the initiative and find out. There's so much good stuff out there of what you can do. Um, But niceness is not one of them. Uh, Niceness. A lot of white people just think, well, I should just be nice and smile at people of color and go to lunch on occasion and and I'm good to go. Um, And I would say um, this system depends on you doing nothing more than being nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because niceness is not courageous in any way. Niceness will not get racism on the table when everybody wants it off the table. You may not even be seen as particularly nice for breaking with white solidarity, right? It takes courageous, intentional, strategic action 
So, so start with educating yourself, like read everything you can, watch every movie you can, listen to podcasts, uh, struggle uh, through all of that. Uh, seek, get out of your comfort zone and build relationships. Uh, make mistakes, you know, thoughtful mistakes. You know, in other words, be willing to take risks. Um, and it's it's a process of building that capacity. But but definitely being complacent or certain uh, will not get you where you need to go. Well, Robin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for just for just doing this work. I'm sure you probably don't hear that as much as you need to hear that. <laughs> But from us, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for just having this conversation for all the work that you do. If people want to continue to learn from you and find the book, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, and you are most welcome. And I really appreciate the, the quality of your questions and you know where, where that allowed me to, to go. Um, it, it, the book is really easily available online. And if you were to just go to my website, you know, one word, robindangelo.com. And under publications, there are several links. Um, the first few are all independent booksellers, which I would recommend first. And then, of course, at the bottom, there's Amazon. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You are so welcome. Okay, Todd. Really important conversation. Heavy conversation. What What's something that you took away from it? Well, I just think it's an interesting perspective um, that uh, I don't think a lot of people think of it like like what she's talking about because um, we always come at it from you know the perspective of you know well the white person is the you know the white per people um, are oppressing in, in a way or they're 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 insensitive or whatever and this is what she's really saying is no actually we need to um, examine this and there's actually a lot of weakness and a lot of fragility here there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that we need to look at we need to talk about that because there's something underneath all of the stuff where we're just pushing racism and we're pushing race conversations to the side and actually um it's it's a fear it's a fear of of change it's a fear of not being in control yep and it's and it's so important for us to continue to have to really continue to have these conversations. It's not something that can be um, swept under the rug or ignored. And yeah, we we need to continue to have these conversations, even if it's uncomfortable, even even if we're not sure what to do. It's important for us to continue to talk about it, continue to have these types of conversations. So if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on um, on whatever podcast player you use. And next week, we are talking with Raphael Sears. Todd, tell us a little bit about Raphael and we're gonna, what we're going to talk with him about. Well, besides being just an awesome individual human. Um, so he is an – what doesn't he do? He's an actor – he is a person who is is studying um, theater. He he just he just moved to to Chicago. He, he he's so he does everything. And this conversation was super super fun um, to be able to talk with him about creativity. To be able to talk with him what about 
um, his story, which his story yeah. is pretty powerful. Which is really powerful. And we, and we talk with him about um, the, the personal growth that he's come along um, throughout the whole thing. And so it's a fascinating conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. And again, the best way to make sure you don't miss it is by subscribing to our podcast and whatever podcast player you use. The only podcast that I really listen to are the podcasts that I subscribe to. And I know that that's true for you too, right, Todd? It is definitely true. Also, leave us a rating and write a review. If you do that, we will read We will read it on the podcast. In voices. And I will make Caleb Mason do a voice. Yeah, we'll see about that. If, if we get... If we get to f- don't put a number on it because I will I will legit go crazy to get the number. If we get um, so cur- currently, um, as of as we are recording this right now, I think we're at thirty two ratings. If we get oh my lord, if we get to one hundred, oh my lord, I will do it. I will. Oh. I will. Yep, you hear it here first. Oh my goodness. So, if that's not a reason to continue oh, to listen to the Learner's Corner, we can do it right there. So, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Ixenbaugh. Keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.